0: Our passage is Hebrews 9, and this is how it ends. It ends in chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, and the author of Hebrews says this. And just as it is appointed for men and women to die once, and after that comes judgment. (laughs) This is where our passage ends. Uh, We all, 100% of us, are going to die. We're all going to die. Every one of us, and we will then, what, after we die, 100% of us, we will face judgment. We will come before the Holy King, the judge of the whole world and our lives, and we will stand there in judgment. It's what the scriptures say is true, it's what uh, echoes in our souls is true, uh, it's why many of us are terrified of death, because uh, we aren't just going into kind of a, a nebulous oblivion, but we know that we are accountable before a holy God, that every one of us will die and then face judgment. So what do we do? Man, we gotta come up with some good jokes, some good heaven jokes uh, to, to lighten the mood of our lives, right? There, there are heaven jokes all over the place, right? These uh, Peter standing at the pearly Gates when we die, because we don't want to think about the fact that, oh man, we're going to face judgment. There's this old lady, a grandma of sorts, she gets onto the plane. She opens up the Holy Bible and she's reading diligently. And two seats over, you got that one seat for COVID in between you two, uh, is this savvy businessman, this young guy, and, and he looks over at the grandma. He kind of scoffs. <laughs> You don't believe what's written in the Bible, the young businessman says. And, and the old grandma says, well, sure, I do. And he says, he says, uh, but you don't believe, you know, about that. That what was that guy's name? That guy who got swallowed by a whale, was in the belly of a whale for three days. And, and she says, Jonah? And he says, yeah, yeah, Jonah. You don't believe that he was actually in the belly of a whale? And she goes... Well, yes, I do. And he says, well, well, how did he stay alive for three days in the belly of a whale? And she goes, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him. The businessman says, how do you know that Jonah's in heaven? Maybe he's in hell. And then she says, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) There's this rich old businessman. He shows up at the pearly gates of heaven and St. Peter is there and, and Peter walks him through the, the streets of heaven. and They pass mansion after mansion after mansion. And then they get to this little shack. And Peter says, here's your place. And the, the rich old businessman scratches his head and he goes, well, why does everybody else have a mansion and, and I have this shack? And, and St. Peter says, well, we did the best with what you sent us. Heaven. How will we have access to heaven? Life with God, the pleasure of God. How do we know when we get there, uh, when we die and face judgment, He'll say, come on in. Come on in. I want you to think about a question this morning, a question we often avoid with jokes or maybe our own atheism that says, I don't want to be held accountable Here's a question. Why will God let you in? Why will God let you into heaven? Every one of us will die. Every one of us will face judgment. Why will he say, come on in? Script the answer in your mind. Get it it real codified. uh, Because one day you will have to answer to the living God when you stand at the gates in judgment. And how sure are you then? If you had to number it, one to ten. Uh, one, I am not sure at all. And ten, I'm I'm super sure. How sure are you that he'll say, "Come on in. You have full access to my home now and forever. I will dwell with you. Be your God. We'll enjoy life together." How sure are you? ultimate access for all of eternity to the living god the king and the father how sure are you that he'll welcome you in and why will he welcome you in See, ultimate access, uh, getting there to heaven, uh, ultimate access will determine and reveal your relationship today. Uh, Knowing how you will end up with God will deeply impact the way you live with Him today. Ultimate access determines today's relationship. You think of it when when you're driving in a car to uh, your mother's house and and you know the way she will receive you. She'll say, come on in, or she'll say, why are you here? Uh, The ultimate way she will receive you uh, both defines and determines your relationship with her right now. Uh, uh, Will the door be opened Uh, shows a great deal about your relationship with this person right now. Ultimate access determines today's relationship. And what we've looked at all through the book of Hebrews is that Jesus shows himself sufficient, better than any way that we could approach the Holy Father. Uh, Jesus shows himself sufficient for life, salvation, that, that we would not give up on him. We would not go back to other ways, but we would walk with him all the way to those pearly gates to have access for sure into heaven to live eternally with our God, and it would change everything about today's relationship with the living God. So as we look at chapter 9 and the idea of access to our God, we're going to look at three themes. Uh, the first theme is that of the tabernacle, the place where we meet with the living God. Uh, then the second theme we'll look at is conscience, uh, uh, the conscience that, that highlights uh, the hesitancy in which we have to move towards uh, the living God. And then finally, blood and how by the blood of Christ we have full and ultimate access to our God for all of eternity and today, and that changes everything. The first theme of the tabernacle, the place in which we meet with God. The second theme of our conscience that highlights our hesitancy to go near our God uh, because we don't know how he will receive us. And then finally, the blood or the access that draws us into intimate relationship with our God. Theme number one, the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the mishkan, is the, uh, to dwell or to meet with God. We see uh, the tabernacle described in chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand stand on the table. And he gives all the details of the tabernacle, this place where we are to meet with God. Uh, The tabernacle is this uh, structure, a tent structure uh, in which God would dwell with his people. What we see uh, is all the way from Eden to the new heavens and the new earth that that God desires covenant. He has made a covenant, a relational agreement with his people. Uh, Back in Eden, he said, I I want to dwell with you in the garden to Adam and Eve. I want to be with you. If you do not eat from the uh, knowledge of the tree of good and evil, then I will d- dwell with you now and forever. But Adam and Eve do, and and they're jettisoned out of the garden. And then uh, God makes this covenant, this relational promise to Abraham and his people. He says, I want to keep dwelling with you. I want you to be my people. I'll bless you. I'll make you a mighty people. I'll give you a land in which to dwell with me, God. And and then uh, then into Moses. And in Moses' time is, is the people of God are exiled out of evil. Egypt. They're, uh, they're in slavery and then they they not exiled. They, they leave Egypt uh, in order to find their home in the promised land. They're wandering in the desert. They find themselves at Sinai, Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain. And God has said, you know, I, I, I made you to dwell with me forever in relationship in Eden. Uh, you Uh, then wandered and were enslaved in Egypt, and now you are out in the desert. And, And he says to Moses and the people, I want to dwell with you. I want to be present with you. I want intimate relationship with you. So he gives them the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the tent of gathering where he could be with his people. If you've ever read through the Bible, you've gotten to Exodus and you see detail after detail after detail. Uh, but poles up this tall uh, make them this long and hang uh, curtains like this. And on the curtains, i uh, put this color and that graphic and and over and over again. And here's the purpose for the tabernacle. God states in Exodus 25, verse eight. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. God says, I want a place to come down and be with you. Exodus 29, verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, your God. See, in this covenant relationship, there is always a place where God says, I want to come and meet with you. Whether it be in the garden and all of creation or now in the tabernacle as they uh, wander the wilderness or, or then in Solomon's temple, which is uh, then uh, a kind of a, a mimicking of the tabernacle or then again in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no temple, but God will again dwell with his people. He says, where there is a covenant relationship, there is a place where I come and meet intimately with you. I want to be with you. And he constructs the tabernacle in this kind of way. Uh, the author of Hebrews captures a lot of these details. But uh, it, it is like this. There's uh, about 150 feet, right, uh, of, of tent. There's this outer curtain around the tent. And, and and there's this entrance in the east. And and because to be east of Eden is to be cast out of God's presence like uh, Adam and Eve. And so uh, you are to enter from this one gate, this one kind of uh, hanging a curtain, and you walk in and and first you see a a bronze altar where in the morning and the evening a lamb is offered to remind the people, oh man, we're sinful people. We should never be able to approach our God. And Israelites can come into this part and and even outsiders who have become part of Israel's community. And then there's this uh, bronze laver, this place where the priest uh, washes his hands and and feet and, and gets ready to enter into the holy place because there's sacrifices to be offered for our sin, and then there's a cleansing that must take place, and then there's entering into the holy place where there's a lampstand, there's a table for bread, and there's this uh, altar for incense, and, and the bread reminds us there's 12 loaves stacked on this bread, and that only God satisfies, and there's these bread and grain offerings to be offered to our Lord, and only the priest can go into the holy place. And then there's a lampstand with with, uh, seven candles in it, threes on the side and one in the middle, and it burns, and and it's the only illumination in this kind of dimly lit uh, holy place. And then there's this altar of incense, and the incense, uh, it kind of goes in and out of the holy place and the most holy of holies, so it's kind of in and out of that inner sanctuary, covering us in the aroma that is pleasing to our God that we might not be crushed in His holiness. And priests can go, can go into the holy place. But then there's this kind of 15 by 15 box where only the high priest can go once a year. And he goes in and on the day of atonement he offers sacrifice. And what we find in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark, you've got Aaron's staff, which is a reminder that that only by a priest's work, a mediator, can we enter into the presence of God. You've got manna inside of the Ark of the Covenant reminding uh, the people of God's provision when we thought there was no provision. You've got the tablets themselves reminding us of God's law and His holiness, that because we are His, because He rescued us, Out of slavery to sin and out of Egypt, we we serve him with our whole lives. They're all right there in the Ark of the Covenant. And on top is the mercy seat. The cherubim on each side, these angels reminding us that holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We should never have access to this God. Uh, It is only by the blood that is wiped on this altar, the blood of a goat or the blood of a lamb, that, that we can step in and find mercy from our God. That he might dwell with us. And, And when they erect this whole tabernacle in Exodus 40, and we see the cloud and the fire and the presence of God come and dwell, and everyone's like, oh my God! Which highlights the tension of the tabernacle. Which is, God is creating a place among us where we'd say, He's he's saying, hey, come close. Come, be intimate. Know me. Be shaped by me. Transformed by me. Enjoy a relationship with me, the living God. Come close. But at the same time, it's like, stay away. (laughs) If you come close, you may die by His holiness. There's another tension that the closer you get in, the fewer people can go. Stay. Come close, but, but stay away. And, and, and then you can come here, but only you can come here, and only you can come in this close. And so our conscience testifies, right, to us. Man, I cannot come that near to the holy, just God. And our conscience testifies to us. I am, no way am I part of that number, <laughs> Theme two, our conscience, which testifies and highlights our hesitancy to come this close to the living God and our hesitancy to believe that we are part of the number that could. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts it, because this whole system has been erected around the tabernacle to gain access to the living God. He says, according to this arrangement, verse 8 of chapter 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered And what cannot they do? And They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They cannot perfect or make whole this stained conscience. There's always discord. The conscience never comes together in a way that it says, ah, I know I can approach this God. He wants me close to him. Ah, I know I am one of the number who can be embraced by the holy God. I can call him Father. He wants me close to him. The conscience is never perfectly purified, never finds great resolve in a way that says, I am his for sure. Now and forever, I am his because... Inside we are impure and these things deal only, verse 10, with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until the time of reformation. They do only with the outside where, where the problem does not reside because the problem resides within us. And these are all external things that are being taken care of. And in the blood of an animal sprinkled for cleanliness, it, it always stays outside these purification codes. It never gets into the real issues. They're over and over. The number is not enough to deal with my sin repetitiously. Aren't you still journaling about the same sins you were committing back in high school? These things cannot perfect our conscience. And we can certainly relate with the Israelites as they looked at Moses as his face shined (laughs) as he met with the living God over and over again. Can't we relate right now? Saying, oh, man, I wish I had what he had. I wish I had that kind of deep relationship, that transformative relationship. It, it says in the text in Exodus that he was a friend of God. He goes up onto the mountain. He goes into the tent, and he enjoys relationship with the living God. He comes out transformed so much that everyone puts veils over their faces. because, like, man, he is bright. This guy is amazing. He's not like us. We'll just stay out here. And and they know there's tons of evidence in their life and our life that that our consciences are soiled, stained. Even as Moses is up on the mountain getting these tabernacle instructions. He's up there in Exodus uh, 30, 31. He's receiving these instructions and then he comes down. And everyone has decided he's been up there way too long. And they've created a golden calf to worship instead. They say, Moses, we didn't know where you were, so Aaron and everybody here, we just created this calf to worship, and the Lord's anger burns. Don't we have a stained conscience that betrays the fact we cannot go near, and we therefore do not go near the living, holy God? Our stained conscience can't be perfected by anything we do or don't do, how good we've been. First, we say to ourselves in our conscience, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Hidden sin, repetitious sin, and grievous sin lingers in our conscience. Hidden sin, we, we take sin and we, and we hide it. And, and we, we, we know it's there and we know the Lord knows it's there. And it just lingers with discord in our stained conscience in a way that says, I'm not good enough. If you all just knew what I think and what I do, what I don't do, what I've looked at, you would know I'm not good enough. And we have hidden sin in our lives that says I cannot approach the living God and I can't be honest with you guys and I can't be honest with Him. Repetitious sin. You say to yourself over and over again, I cannot believe that I keep tweaking these truths in a way that other people think better of me when I know I'm just lying. I can't believe I've stumbled again in that way over and over again. Hidden sin, repetitious sin, or grievous sin keeps us saying, I'm not good enough. You, You look back in your life and you say, I'll never get past that guilt. The things I did with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, the, the way I spoke to my coworker, uh, the, 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 the injustice, the way I treated someone with less power than me. I'll never get over that. He'll never receive me. Doesn't your conscience testify to the fact that you are not good enough? I'm not good enough? I'm not good enough. Second, I've not done enough. Maybe you live your life in dry legalism. You worked without joy for the church you have served and you put on a facade of a smile, but man, you're just slaving away. More and more and more to find yourself pleasing to the people in the church and to a God you think is not pleased with you. Or I'm not in enough. I, I I'm on the out group, whatever the in group is. I'm over here and and the white Republican Christians are over there and I have to be that in order to get in. Or I'm over here and the progressive woke Christians are over here and and I'm not that so I can't be in. And and, and I'm not this or that so I can't be in. Our stained conscience leaves us saying when we get to the the doorway to a relationship and access with God, we see this welcome mat. (laughs) Go away. Just go away. And that's how we think our God would receive us. Because our conscience is not perfected. Go away. And it gets deadly when a stained conscience turns into either a seared or a strained conscience. When a a stained conscience says, I'm not good enough, I've not done enough, I'm not in enough. Uh, When we decide, we get to the go away, Matt, we say, fine, forget it. And we sear our conscience, and we do go away because we think this is how God will receive us when we come ultimately before him. So every day we have just said, fine, I will go away, and our conscience is seared. It becomes deadly when we sear our conscience. Or when we strain our conscience, we say, he says go away, but if I did a bit more. If I just kind of bucked up a bit more, I was unholy and impure, then I'll be more holy, more pure now, and he'll receive me. I didn't serve. I didn't evangelize. I will serve. I will evangelize. So when I come, he won't say, go away. And we strain our consciences. When we see her or we strain our consciences, it becomes Deadly. You may even find yourself saying something like, I have to eliminate temptations. To speak honestly for a second, how sick did it get this past week? This is what happens uh, in a, a massive kind of way when we do not deal with our guilt before a holy God in the way that he says to deal with our guilt before a holy God. This is what kind of perversions and distortions occur that lead to death and destruction in our lives now and forever. When a young man says, I I am going to eliminate the temptations in my life and goes into three massage parlors and kills eight people. Let's speak honestly about this for a second. As an individual, he is culpable for his sins before the holy, just God. For his murder of eight people, six of them Asian American women. whether it's things in skewed sexuality or in terms of racism or how those things came together. He is culpable before a holy God. He he, he will be crushed for his sins if a Savior is not crushed in his place for his sins. Let's speak honestly, though, about how sin has influenced the cultural context in this moment. Within the church, this idea of a purity culture. If, if you don't live up to this certain level of purity, often God's standards of purity, that you are as well as condemned to hell. So the conscience is so stained with, with our uh, insecurities before our God, knowing our perversions, that uh, over and over again we try and live up to a standard in order to be pleasing to our God because our conscience is in turmoil. I won't date, I'll court. I, I, I won't just not have sex. I won't go anywhere near. I'll barely hold pinkies with my girlfriend, right? Because uh, we have to be so pure to stand before the holy God. And purity culture leads to this kinds of things in certain ways. And, and then what about our cultural context and Asian American racism? And how that has just uh, continued to exacerbate itself in, in terms of how it's being shown this past year with COVID-19. I mean, all the way back to immigration and then laws that were written for Asian-American uh, um, immigrants uh, that were uh, uh, keeping uh, Asian-Americans out and then in certain sections of our country. And then uh, Japanese internment and, and then the different slurs that are created and used in different communities uh, against Asian-Americans. And, and then this past year of China virus and Kung, and Kung flu. 3,800. Hate crimes committed against Asian Americans this past year just reported. And you say, it's no big deal to say China virus or Kung flu. It's because you're not Asian American. And the holy God looks down and says, you have broken covenant with me, every one of you. Because you have not lived a holy life. We don't relate to him the way we ought to. We don't relate to one another the way we ought to. And we will die and face judgment. Every one of us. We're a bunch of Nadabs and Abihu's. Leviticus 10, two sons of Aaron who come before the Holy God and are consumed by his fire because of their disobedience. At the tabernacle. Which takes us to theme number three. If the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He is a mediator of a new covenant by his blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have broken covenant with the living, just, holy God. And we will face judgment. Because without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That the breaking of covenant demands uh, the, the destruction of the covenant breaker. Let our consciences not not lead us to searing our consciences or straining our consciences by trying to be better, but might our consciences lead us to Jesus whose blood is poured out for us. He takes the place of the covenant breaker, us, that we might enter into perfect access, absolute relationship with the living God as sons and daughters. Only by blood is there forgiveness of sins. How, How do we... No, where do we see this as we close? Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 and following. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You said, go away when I tried to come near, Jesus says on the cross. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rock split. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom And God, in that moment, he said, come on in. Why? Because Jesus' blood was the culmination of a perfect sacrifice. He was good enough. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know it's not with the perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but it was the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It was his blood, his perfect blood. It's a sacrifice he offered in our place. The wages of sin is death, and he paid it. His blood on our behalf, his blood was a culmination of perfect sacrifice. He is good enough. His blood is also the culmination of perfect obedience. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Before the cross, Jesus had to decide, will I obey the Father even in this? (laughs) And he did all the way to his death and his blood being spilled. His blood is the culmination of perfect sacrifice in our place. And his blood is the culmination of perfect obedience in our place. He has done enough. And in Revelation chapter 7, where there's no more temple in the new heavens and the new earth. Because we will dwell with our God because of the work of Christ. There's all tribes, tongues, and nations they are worshiping God. And John comes into the scene and he looks around and, and he talks to an angel there. And, and the angel said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, Who are these, right? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. What they have been washed, their robes, and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Outsiders brought in. Jesus' is blood means he's the perfect sacrifice, good enough in our place. Jesus' blood means he's the perfect obedience. He's done enough in our place. Jesus' blood means you and I are welcomed in. We are in enough because his blood is humanity's blood poured out for us. The veil is torn. And the welcome mat is this. Because of the blood of Christ, you and I can approach The throne of grace with confidence and be welcomed in because his blood was spilled, his body was broken in our place. So submit yourselves this morning to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you and what? Come near to God and he will come near to you. Because Jesus has done enough. Jesus is good enough. And Jesus brings you in as a son or daughter by his grace.